Father, would you please open our blind eyes and help us to see Jesus clearly, who he is, what he's done, what it means to trust him and follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, previously on Matthew's Gospel, as they say, uh, we met a family, Jesus' family, in fact, who were blind to who Jesus is. If you were here last week, you'll remember this. They were blinded by the familiar. And as Matthew continues his account, we've heard him uh, tell of this miraculous feeding of a massive crowd of people. And there's a danger... But like the family we heard about last time, if you were with us, we may be blinded by the familiar. If you've spent any time around church, if you've been to Sunday school, you know, this is an episode you're likely to have heard not just once or twice, but multiple times. If that's not you, well, welcome. And I wonder, when you heard that reading read... Did it strike you as a bit odd, ridiculous, crazy to take this sort of account seriously in the 21st century? However much familiar we are with this, let's just take a moment to consider the scale of what is being claimed about Jesus. Uh, Jesus has tried to take some time alone to regroup with his closest followers, the 12 disciples, but the crowds have followed him and they've found him. And it's getting near the end of the day and there's a well-being issue. No food available except one of the disciples comes up with five loaves of bread and two fish. By the end of the episode, the entire crowd has been fed. And we're told it's 5,000 men and some others. If you, if you want to imagine that, uh, think last night of the proms last night. Uh, I was there with Eliana. That is a photograph that I took. The capacity of the Royal Albert Hall, when it's full as it was last night, is about 5,000 people. So imagine all those people. Actually, Matthew is not quite saying 5,000. If you look, he's saying 5,000 men besides women and children. So it's more, perhaps think, 5,000 families. You know, a crowd of over 20,000 people. Think maybe a capacity crowd at Lord's for the final day of a deciding Ashes test match. It is those kinds of numbers. And it's a lot of bread. Now, Matthew explicitly rules out the idea that everyone was given a very small amount, you know, like a sort of modern communion service. You know, we, we get, we got last week, we had communion here, we're just under about, about 100 people. We got through a loaf of bread just about, so there was a bit left over, uh, sharing out a little tiny bit. Uh, but no, Matthew talks about leftovers, if you look. Uh, verse uh, 20. Twelve basketfuls of leftovers after everyone had eaten all that they needed and wanted. They were satisfied. So the amount of bread involved in feeding that kind of number of people is extraordinary, isn't it? Um, a, a loaf of bread, as we might uh, think of it, might feed a, a, a family. Think of 5,000 of those loaves of bread. You know, fill this stage, wouldn't it? You know, a bit above my head, piled up. In fact, the bread that they ate probably uh, would have been smaller and flatter, like a kind of pita bread. 
But even imagine that, 20,000 portions of pita. You could carpet the floor in here, couldn't you, several times over with that amount of bread. And that's before we even begin to think about the fish. So it is a miracle of mind-blowing proportions. It is something supernatural. It is something extraordinary. It is worth pointing out as, as well that there is, um, uh, there is a more what you might call liberal interpretation of this account that you sometimes hear, which claims that what was going on was that the example of whoever it was who brought forth the, the, you know, the five loaves and two fishes, that example of them doing that caused everyone else to kind of very guiltily bring out all the food that they'd brought with them too and share it around. And so what this actually is, people say, oh no, this, this, is, this is a miracle of sharing. It's the first bring and share lunch, people might say. But actually, that does not make sense when you read the response to what's has been uh, to, to what happens, particularly towards the end of the next section, because immediately afterwards, and we'll see this next week when we look at it, verse 22, immediately they go on and Jesus ends up walking on water. The disciples end up walking on water too. And at the end of all that, verse 33, what's their response? They worship him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, that is not something that good Jewish monotheists say to just anybody, even to someone who organises a very successful bring-and-share lunch. There is more going on than that. This is a miracle of extraordinary proportions. But I guess those uh, of us you know, who are more familiar with this will be... Uh, tempted probably to say oh yeah you know I know what this says it says Jesus is God Jesus is amazing brilliant I knew that and that's what it's saying tick the box move on well I want us to look a little bit more carefully to ensure that we don't miss what Matthew in particular wants us to see through the blindness of familiarity because here's the thing there's no doubt Matthew has carefully crafted his gospel. It's not just a random collection of interesting stories. There is significance in how and when he says things. And so in the gospel, the basic idea of who Jesus is, his identity, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, well, that was the main topic back in chapters 8 and 9, which we looked at a couple of uh, years ago. And that's where we saw uh, all kinds of remarkable healings, raising someone from death, calming the storm. And those things are there to convince us at that point, back in chapters 8 and 9, this Jesus is not a regular man. He is the man who is God on earth. He's the son of God. He's the promised Messiah or king that the Old Testament talks about. So if that's all the feeding of the 5,000 tells us, well, it's a bit strange because we've kind of already done that in Matthew's gospel. Now we're into a new section. We saw last week Matthew divides up his book into chunks of Jesus' teaching and then action. And this is a section of action that began with the, the, the passage we had last week. And it has at its centre chapter 16 and verses uh, 13 to 20, where Peter makes a clear declaration of who Jesus is. And with that comes a specific emphasis from Matthew that we don't get in the other Gospels, which is Jesus' words in reply to him. I tell you, chapter 16, verse 18, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. 
And that helps us to see what this section 14 to 17 is about, chapters 14 to 17. It's about Jesus building his church, gathering his people, building his church. And then what happens then, chapter 18, we move into specific teaching about being church and what that looks like. So what we can expect to see is Jesus building his church in these verses. And these chapters and and, and this miracle in front of us now make clear, well, well, Jesus is at the center of this as he gathers his people. He's in the middle. But we are seeing what it means to be gathered into that church with him at the center that he is building. And as we zoom back into the feeding of the 5,000 for the rest of our time now, what is going on here is that Matthew is showing us the kind of king that Jesus is. Because immediately beforehand, what have we just seen? We've seen another king. If you were here last week, we heard about King, uh, king Herod. Herod Antipas, the one the Romans appointed as king of the Jews. And we've seen what happened at his feast. Do you remember if you were with us? Driven by wanting to be loved at any cost, his feast ends in the gruesome beheading of John the Baptist. So right here, what have we got now? We've got a different kind of king with a different kind of feast. Different kind of king with a different kind of feast. And there are two things then to see about this different kind of king. So here's the first one. Look at Jesus's compassionate power. Look at Jesus's compassionate power. Jesus has heard about Herod's beheading of John the Baptist. We heard in verse 13, his immediate response is to withdraw. He he does this a number of times in the Gospels. He's sustained in his most public of ministries by private prayer and intimacy with his father, But he doesn't get long because the crowds work out where he's gone, probably across the northern lake at the tip of Lake Galilee, and they follow him on foot. And we see something of Jesus' infinite capacity to give himself to others. You know, think how easily, you know, we pull up the drawbridge after a long day or a long week and say, you know, that's it, I've got no more to give. Well, it's the opposite with Jesus. We do that because we're finite human beings. He is not. He goes on giving. He has compassion on the crowd. That word compassion describes an emotional response of love to the needs that he sees around him. And he heals. Do you see what he's doing? He's using his great, awesome, infinite power as the king of the universe. He's using it for the sake of those around him. The American pastor Ray Ortland talks about how his dad used to say there are two ways to enter the room. Okay, two ways to enter a room. There's the way that says, here I am, notice me, will you serve me? Do you recognize that? Here I am, notice me, will you serve me? But there's another way to enter a room. There's a way that says, there you are, I notice you. How can I serve you? Now think of which of those King Herod exemplifies with his crippling desire to have people love him, his casual beheading of a great prophet just to get a laugh at a party. Think which of those you and I exemplify most of the time. Are we saying, notice me? 
or I notice you. But then see which of those the Lord Jesus consistently exemplified in his life and ministry and what he is showing here. And that then leads to this extraordinary miracle of feeding this massive crowd. Now, in one sense, you might call this an unnecessary miracle. Do you know what I mean? It's it's unnecessary in the sense that probably nobody was going to die if they didn't have any food at this point. No one was going to starve. And that's why the disciples come to him and they say, look, let's just send everybody home. It's getting near the end of the day. Everyone's going to get hungry. And it's not great if you've got a massive crowd of people who are hungry. You know, better, should we just send them home and then we won't get into even more of a problem? So this isn't like people coming to Jesus in deep distress because a loved one is gravely ill or has just died. There's something different, isn't there? He doesn't kind of need to do this, but he does it. Why does he do this? Well, we heard in the first reading from Exodus that Carrie read for us. Anyone who knew the history of God's people in the Old Testament would have got a sense of deja vu when they saw, or in the case of one of Matthew's first readers, when they heard of Jesus being with his followers in a deserted place. We're told twice in verse 13 and verse 15, this is a solitary place, a remote place, a desert. And there's a sense of people needing to be fed, of there being no other options available, and then a miraculous feeding of bread from heaven. So Jesus looks up to heaven, verse 19, and everyone eats as much as they needed and they're satisfied, just as we heard of God's people with Moses in in Exodus. So do you see, Jesus is being presented to us as being like Moses, and this is exactly what God's people have been waiting for, a second Moses, a new Moses. And Matthew presents Jesus very clearly in that kind of way, even down to he's got these five blocks of teaching in the gospel, which remind us of Moses' five books in the, in the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy. So God has sent another Moses, someone even greater than Moses, to save his people. So look at him as he gathers a new people. Look at his compassionate power. Look at his willingness to provide for his people. Remember earlier in, in, in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 6, Jesus has those well-known words where he says, do not worry, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the pagans run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need, him, need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So now now we're kind of seeing that in in action. Is this then a king that we can trust with our whole life, with our families, with our loved ones, with our livelihoods, with our futures, with our deaths? Is this a king where we can say, I cannot depend on myself. I must not depend on myself. I must depend on you, Lord Jesus. I can depend on you. 
in a world ravaged by sin and destruction and cycles of violence and war, you know, in a world where we look at a country like Afghanistan and we say, what hope is there after, you know, 20 years of attempt to put things right and look where we are now? What hope is there for mankind, we say? And then we look at ourselves and our own, just our own lives getting on with things now. And we see the same cycles of sin and selfishness and, and me-centeredness. In the face of all that, here is a king who looks with compassion and provides for his people with what they need the most, with not just bread, but with a rescue from sin and death. The new Moses is here not to take for himself, not to get pleasure at the expense of others, not to rule over others in such a way that he benefits at their expense, but to serve, to give himself, to use his extraordinary power that we see on display here for the good of the people that he's gathering around himself. Can we believe that in the face of a hard year, a hard 18 months, more uncertainty to come? Look how good, how compassionate, how powerful this king is. Jesus is. It is compassion that drives him here. You know, it's not eye-rolling as you or I sin yet again. It's not sort of gritted teeth as he just does the right thing when he'd rather be doing something else. There's no record kept of all the sins that he's had to overlook because he's already paid for them as we look at him today. He's already paid for them. Look at this good, compassionate, powerful king who's given himself for us at the cross and trust him. That is the first thing and the, the, the main thing that we need to see from these verses. But secondly, and finally and briefly, there is another thing as well. Look at how Jesus uses his followers. Look at how Jesus uses his followers. If these verses were a symphony, uh, you might call this a kind of secondary theme, a counter-subject, in contrast with the primary theme, which is this powerful, this compassionate power of, of Jesus. But the disciples come to him with this question, and, and, and then he replies, you give them something to eat. And they have only five loaves and two fish, and he, he, he takes them, he gives thanks and he breaks them and he gives them to his disciples and Matthew tells us then that the disciples give them to the people. Now maybe Matthew tells us this just because that's what happened and that may be true and, and this telling of how it happened is there in the other Gospels as well but in those contexts it's slightly less significant here in Matthew it seems right to notice this because of those verses in chapter 16 again I will build my church on this rock on Peter on my follower see Jesus is building his church but he's not doing it alone he doesn't just say I'll do it myself he says on this weak sinner Peter who, like every other disciple, is a sinner. He, he, will lately, he, he will later deny him, but he chooses to involve him and to use his followers with him in his mission that he's come to do. Does he need to do that? 
well, in, in, in one sense, surely he could do anything he liked. You know, he can feed 5,000 families from a packed lunch. He doesn't need to involve his people in one sense in getting his task done, in building his church, of bringing his message to the world. But we might say the same about the way Jesus came in the first place. You know, couldn't Jesus have come as a, as a fully grown adult? Well, we can't really answer that in one sense, but we do know how he did come. He came in weakness. He came as a tiny baby to begin with. And that pattern continues in the way that he builds his church. Faced with a hungry crowd, he still chooses to use and involve his disciples. The chief shepherd uses under-shepherds to get the job done. And there is something here in the way that the disciples come to him with a need and a proposed solution. You know, people are hungry, so let's send them home. And Jesus responds with a bigger vision of what might be possible that they could never have dreamt of. You give them something to eat. And their response is, well, no, that, that's impossible. We can't do that. We, look, we haven't got enough. Look at our very limited resources. This tiny packed lunch that will feed two or three people max. Bring them here, give them to me, says Jesus. And it, in one sense, it's a risk. Now they have absolutely nothing at all. They had a little bit before. Now they've got nothing. They could at least have sort of shared out and fed some of the immediate 12 disciples. They've given it up. They've given it to him. He gives thanks to God. He breaks them. He gives them and he uses them. He uses the followers, to share the results of what he does in a way that would have seemed impossible when they began. You know, think how easy it would have been to settle for the easy way out. Just, just send them home. Think how tempting it would have been to say the task ahead of them was impossible. Well, we have a task, don't we, today? a mission as a church that we've been asked to share in by Jesus himself. The gospel ends with Jesus sending out his disciples. The risen Lord Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. And so on. And that is still our task today, isn't it? Our task in Hampstead. And yet we go out on the, you know, on the heath or the high street on a beautiful day like this and we, we, we will see thousands of people. The kind of crowds that earlier in Matthew's Gospel Jesus calls sheep without a shepherd. And again, when we read that earlier in the Gospel, Matthew says he had compassion on them. And we think, we, we look at that now, don't we? And we look at that and we think, you know, well, it's, we can't reach these people with the gospel. They're not going to listen to us. And we look at the barriers that COVID has created and is continuing to create. The, the, the isolation, the way that we've all had to get rather too used to being on our own in our own bubbles. And we look at the task and we think, isn't it just easier not to do it? Isn't it just easier to pack up and go home and just, just, just recognise our resources are way too small and we are far too weak. We can't do this. Don't have enough time. Can't spare the money. The task is too big. Let's just leave it. 
But look at who this king is that we serve. Look at his compassionate power that demonstrates he has come to save his people. Look at how he uses his followers to serve him beyond any human expectation. So as we serve this different kind of king, what small insignificant resource is he saying, bring to me in order that he might multiply and use it to care for his people and the world? It might be a little bit of time, a couple of hours to serve with God's people. You know, we, the, the, the church here, we have the kind of programmed stuff that, that goes on. We have ESL, we have the English as a Second Language classes, Mini Mischief, Awesome Engage, small groups. There's some outreach going on right here in the building this afternoon that Grace is going to be leading as we seek to just welcome people coming past as they walk past and we just share with them about what the church is and what's going on. We're doing that again this afternoon as Keats House is also open uh, this afternoon as well. It's the kind of program stuff that, you know, people can give their time to and get involved in in just a little bit of time, and it makes a big difference. But there's also, there's also the unseen, informal, giving ourselves to others. Catching up with and encouraging Christians in their faith. Befriending a non-Christian friend. And just spending time with them because they're going through a really difficult time sharing hope and love with them. But what Matthew is showing us here is that this church that Jesus is building can't just be about consuming the bread. It's not just a place to consume, he's showing us. It's a place where he will use us to share the bread with others. So we need to not think of ourselves as, as consumers, we need to think of ourselves more as waiters, seeing our, our limited resources turn miraculously into food that will feed God's people and the wider world. And that goes for all of us, whatever our role. If we're trusting in Jesus, we're part of this family. And we have a job to do, to share this good news with the world around us. But it all starts with seeing who Jesus is, who he really is. If you've not yet seen that for yourself, see him here. Keep coming, keep seeing week after week what he does, who he is, what his heart is for those like us who are sinners, those like us who are sufferers, know that this Jesus has compassionate power. He is the king, a different kind of king that we can trust, who's come to serve, come to him and trust him. And when we've done that, let's then see how he will use us in his work. Let's pray now.
When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Heavenly Father, we marvel at Jesus. We marvel at his compassion and his power. If we're seeing this for the first time, would you continue to open our eyes to see who he really is, to see his significance for us, for our world, to see that he is someone we can trust with our whole lives. We can come to him in repentance for our sin, turning our backs on our life of living for ourselves and turn to him and trust him, knowing that his death has covered every sin And so we can trust him and know our sins forgiven. And then, Heavenly Father, may we then be used by our King Jesus in his kingdom. Going with his authority to bring the good news about what he's done to a world that needs to hear it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.